Uh, good evening. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, it is so exciting to see such a full house and a packed house. Thank you all so much for coming here tonight. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Will Sparks. I am the Dennis Thompson Chair and Professor of Leadership here in the McCall School. And it is my honor and privilege to welcome you tonight to our uh, terrific Leaders in Action speaker. And I'm going to ask uh, Leon to introduce himself here in just a few minutes. And you're going to get to know Leon much better as we move through the evening. Um, on behalf of our Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs, Sarah Fatherly, and the Associate Provost and Interim Dean of the McCall School of Business, Greg Piller, uh, I want to welcome all of you to Queen's University and to the McCall School of Business. We're going to get started here. There are just a couple of special guests that I would like to recognize as we get started. The first is Ken Walker. Ken is here. He is the Chair of the McCall School Board of Advisors, and Ken, I really appreciate you being here tonight. And Peter Browning is the other person that I would like to recognize. Peter is a current executive in residence here in the McCall School of Business. But more importantly than that, uh, he is the former dean of the McCall School of Business. And for tonight, maybe more importantly than that, former director at Nucor, where he served as non-executive uh, chair as well. So Absolutely. thank you, Peter, for being here very much. OK, so with that, let's dive in, and we'll get started. Uh, we've got some uh, questions that we're just going to walk through, sort of a in, very informal conversation. And uh, then we will leave the last 10 minutes or so for Q&A. So if you've got a question, please be thinking of that. And we'll open it up. Uh, I suspect we're going to run out of time for those. So uh, if you don't get your question asked, perhaps you'll have a chance at our reception, which will immediately follow. Rather than being upstairs, it's going to be in the Sarah Belk Gambrell building that is right beside us. So if you walked up and you saw the new building with the fountains, we'll be in that building for our reception and hope you can join us for that this evening. One uh, thing that I would like to ask you, please, um, is when we do adjourn at uh, 7 for the sake of time, if you'll let us come up the aisle, uh, people want to come down and ask uh, Leon a question. And I've learned after 15 years of doing this with my fragile ego, they're not coming down to see me. Uh, <laughs> coming down to talk to the speaker, and I don't blame you. But if you can let us uh, go up to upstairs and out to the Gambrel Center, that way we can enjoy the refreshments and, um, and uh, have our fellowship in, uh, in that location as well. So let's get started. Okay. Leon, President, CEO of Nucor, quite a career with Nucor as well. Uh, why don't we just begin by telling us about yourself, your background, uh, where you were raised, your, your first job, your undergraduate major, when you joined Nucor, all of the stuff where we can wow. really get to know you. Okay, well, first, thank you for having me. Uh, Happy New Year to all of you for spending an hour with us tonight. Um, that's a lot of questions, and I'll try my best to, um, to, to give you some background. So I grew up in northern New Jersey. Um, all my, both sides of my parents at the time, family was all in Boston, so we spent a lot of time there. Uh, went to undergrad at a uh, small Merchant Marine Academy uh, called Massachusetts Maritime Academy for college. Um, you know, I, I like to, to, uh, to build things, and I figured mechanical engineering would be a really good undergrad major for me to be able to pursue um, my dreams of building things. At that time, I had zero idea of working in steel. That was not um, anywhere in the radar, nor was it in the plans. And so after graduating from Mass Maritime, I got hired with Westinghouse Electric in their nuclear engineering uh, division. So I worked in 
short side nuclear power plants all over the country for about five years. And then um, when we were building our plant in Charleston, South Carolina, they needed a, a couple states to compete against um, one another for incentives in building the facility there. So Virginia was one of the states and South Carolina was the other. So working for the utility in Virginia, uh, began to hear about this company called Nucor and all the case studies and things that uh, made this company incredibly special, egalitarian benefits, which I had no idea at the time what that meant, so I had to look that up. Um, and so long story short, I sent in a resume to a guy that you know, Jim Coblin, and uh, certainly Peter knows. And I, I would say the rest is history, but it, it's really not, because in 96, when I joined Nucor, I, I, you know, I, I thought I was getting a job, and what I realized very soon was I, I found a home, and it was absolutely incredible. And so I'm married to my best friend for uh, 29 years uh, in two weeks, Kim. We have four children. Um, we've moved 10 times in the 26 years I've been with Nucor all over the U.S., uh, four years in Australia, and she is a saint for uh, putting up with all that. She's uh, restarted her career in every one of those locations as a uh, counselor, um, done an incredible job of making our houses a home for our four kids, and so couldn't be more proud. We have all of them now back in Charlotte, so our two older kids and our first grandson uh, live about four houses away from us. So we, uh, yeah, we couldn't be more proud and more pleased to be here tonight, more pleased to be in Charlotte, and, and really just to share, you know, we are the largest steel producer in the Western Hemisphere, and we've been headquartered here in South Park for 60 years, and so few people actually know who we are and what we do. So again, thank you yeah. for the opportunity to share a little bit. It's, it's an honor for us. Uh, Leon, let me ask you a little bit about the, the, the culture and the company of Nucor. I mean, you, and the way you've changed the, the steel industry. Um, and, and when we were talking earlier, you mentioned about how that culture and values match was so important for you, and you recognize that early on. So could you talk a little bit about, about the value match uh, with, with the culture of Nucor and also how Nucor has changed and is changing the steel industry? Yeah, look, again, for most of us, when we get hired into a company, it's, it's a job. It's day one. You're learning everything all over again. And so, you know, the way I was raised and my sister was raised, it was very simple. My, my values in my life are quite simple. It's my faith, my family, and Nucor in that order. And I, I can remember um, when I took over as CEO, standing before 29,000 team members at the time, live streaming all over the world, um, we launched our new mission statement. And I shared my values with our team at the time, and I'm looking at our chairman of the board, as I told 29,000 team members that the most important thing in life is not steelmaking. It's not our profits. It's not what we do. It's how you take care of and how we take care of the Nucor family and each and every one of you going home to your loved ones. Because the reality is very simple, that our team members are driving through the gates and towns and cities across this incredible nation of ours, not for the love of steel and the five letters in our name, but to provide a better life for themselves, for their families, for their children and grandchildren. And whatever their value sets are, may be very different from mine, that's what's most important. And so when you find a company that can match that value set, that cares as much about you and your career and your development as someone does their own, man, you have found a very, very special place. And so Ken Iverson began this company back in the 60s. I feel incredible gratitude for being able to be a part of this and steward and shepherd as CEO, the next generation for Nucor leaders, because 
For me, it is an incredible um, uh, responsibility, but it's an incredible um, gift that we get to leave in terms of our culture, that it is the most um, endearing and it is the single most important reason we are so profitable and we have a single digit retention and we do all the things that we do because we take great care of the 31,000 men and women who call Nucor home. Mm. So that's a couple thousand more than yes. 2020 when you uh, were named. Yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, so would you talk a little bit about the, the core values of, of Nucor? What are Nucor's core values and, and why did you um, align on those? Well, it, yeah, it begins, and I'll, I'll show you, none of you will be able to read it, but again, when I took over as CEO, we launched our challenge coin, which simply states, becoming the world's safest steel company. On the back of our coin is our eight-word mission statement, but it's surrounded by four words, trust, teamwork, open communication, and family. And those are the four pillars of our, our value set, because again, when you understand that the team members that are coming to do and work and, and provide the livings they're providing, our responsibility and our greatest value is how we care for them. And so that is, you know, part of the uh, incredible um, um, harmony that we have with our team across the, uh, across the United States and again beyond is, is caring for them. As I think about the pandemic when I took over, you know, the COVID-19 hit about eight weeks after I took over as CEO. And so that was not in the playbook, right? I had my 100-day plan and, um, you know, everything was going great until, you know, I'm like, this thing is not going to go away. And so now what? And, um, and, and what do you do? Leaders lead. And so when the chips were down and things were hitting and we didn't know what we were going to do, we knew one thing, that we were going to not just survive this pandemic but thrive coming out of it. And so for Nucor, we pay um, our production team members, about two-thirds of their pay is at risk. So if they're not producing, they're not making any money. So if you look at their hourly rate, you're like, man, that's kind of low. But combined, um, our average team member last year made over $140,000 a year. So it's significant. Um, you know, last year as well, we returned almost $900 million back to the 30,000 team members below the VP level. And we take 10% of our pre-tax earnings and give it back to our team. So every team member also on top of that received about a $42,000 check um, just because the culture that was born and, and, and you know, bred inside a new core has been, um, again, incredible. And to shepherd that and continue to steward that gives us great advantages as we look to attract, retain, develop, um, and continue to grow our company. You know, one of the things that's unique about Nucor is that you you don't have employees, you have teammates. You've sort of touched on this a little bit, but would you talk a little bit about why you chose that, or why was that ch term chosen? How long has it been teammate versus employee or associate? Um, yeah, I can't tell you how long, but you know, my the reason we don't use the word employee is to me an employee has a job. A team member has a vested stake and is a equal part of a entrepreneurial spirit that they have direct control of the, the, the output of what they do each and every day. Mm -hmm. And so that's something very different in our minds and as we think about creating an environment where you have 31,000 owners. So they take great care of how we take care of our customers, how we take care of our shareholders. Mm -hmm. You know, we're accomplishing things that everyone in the industry said Nucor would never be able to do, and today we're doing it. They said Nucor will never be able to make automotive steels. 
Today we are now a recipient of the General Motors Supplier of the Year Award three years, back to back to back, running the first EAF in the world to ever receive that distinction. So we continue to shatter paradigms, but it's not because of me. It's an incredible team that when you give them the tools, you give them the freedom, you put an environment and a strategy before them and get out of their way, they accomplish incredible things. And uh, again, I just feel incredibly blessed to be a part of that and, and continue to steward that as we grow. I think I heard today that GM passed Toyota as well as the largest yeah. uh, in sales of yeah. Yeah, production. So, yeah, yeah that's, in, that's incredible. Um, so let me ask you a little bit about your style and, and vision, uh, having been chosen to, uh, to lead Nucor. Uh, you clearly had a compelling vision for the organization and for the company. Could you talk a little bit about um, your vision for Nucor's future and, and sort of how you see that uh, coming together? Yeah, it, um, you know, back in 2019-ish, um, our board at the time, and Peter probably can explain this uh, process behind the boardroom doors better than I can, because I was a candidate at the time, were asked to put together a white paper, which um, if you don't know what a white paper is, I had to learn as well. So, you know, I got to write a term paper after 30 years of being out of, out of college, you right? You thought you were done. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and so... I love Mark Twain's quote that said, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one because my first draft was about 35 pages. And I'm like, I don't even want to read this. And so, um, but what was clear and, and what I did have a clear vision for at the time was, you know, where I thought Nucor could and should grow. And so our mission statement that all 31,000 team members can tell you is only eight words. It's grow the core, expand beyond, and live our culture. The living the culture piece is, really the embodiment of an unapologetic quest to deliver world-class results in every area of our business. See, at the end of the day, if you can't provide a return to your shareholders, you're not going to be in business for very long. But it doesn't mean we have to sacrifice how we care for our men and women in, in, that make up the family. And so today, Nucor is now on back to back to back to back, safest years in the history of Nucor. And we've done it while we've been the most profitable, the cleanest, the most sustainable, and, and doing things we've never, ever done before in terms of how we care for our team. And so, you know, it, it's not a dichotomy. It's, it's not a mutually unexclusive opportunity. When you take great care of your team, they take great care of you. So, you know, that eight-word mission statement was um, kind of my vision. On the grow the core was just that. We needed to grow in, in our steel making capability that everyone knew Nucor for in, in products and capabilities and in serving our customers for the long term. But the expand beyond piece was a little bit of a, a different piece. You know, when you're the largest steel producer in North America and you're the largest producer in eight out of the 12 major categories that you supply to, how do you grow? How do you continue to, to build upon um, that platform, and it, it was something that Newcourt talked a lot about early in my career, which was compound annual growth rate, and, and any of you MBA students can wax lyrical on, on Kager, but we stopped talking about it about a decade ago, didn't mention it anymore, because if you're going to grow at 10 or 15% annually, well, how are you going to do that in North American Steel when you're already the biggest? You've got DOJ risks in terms of growing, in terms of monopolies and, and whatnot, so how are you going to do it? So the expand beyond piece for us was we've got to start moving outside of the traditional boundaries of steelmaking and move into expanded businesses that offer the same manufacturing efficiency, the same cultural 
uh, buy-in that we um, are known for and continue to look for in terms of how we care for our team and find businesses that have some steel centricity to it that um, will marry up very well. And the largest acquisition we've ever made uh, came last summer with an acquisition of CHI Overhead Door Company, a $3 billion uh, purchase and about 1,000 team members that are an incredible fit. And everybody was wondering, well, how does a steel company buy a garage door company? Well, they use a lot of steel, not, not 30 million tons worth, but, you know, enough. But their, their way they care for their team, their revenues, their business model is like this mini Nucor. And so while they're smaller in terms of the, the market share that they have today, they're growing by leaps and bounds, and they offer something very different that their competitors can't. So that's the other side of it for Nucor is we're going to continue to find ways to continue to grow and having our team members start, start talking about Kager again so that we think about how we're going to grow into the future and how we're going to provide better returns than we ever have to our shareholders. One thing I failed to mention, uh, mention, I apologize, is that you were recently voted one of the top ten leaders in Charlotte by Charlotte Business Journal. And I want to couple that with uh, an observation that I had had over a couple of years and we talked briefly about before we came down is this uh, commitment to the Charlotte community. I know Nucor has always been very committed in the communities uh, where, that you serve, but the, the headquarters and sort of the home office here in Charlotte, that may be a little under the radar. And you, I think that's dramatically changed. Uh, reading a lot about Nucor, could you talk a little bit about the decision to, to be more visible in the community, what, what led to that and, and what, what benefit have you seen? Sure, well, I mean, it began with my 26-year journey and being in, you know, 10 different locations and in, infusing in yourself. Everywhere we've been, we've moved to that community. We've lived there. We, our kids went to school with, you know, our, 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 our you know, fellow neighbors in, in, in that community. And so we got involved. We got involved personally and professionally. We got our teammates involved and, you know, whether it's the um, American Heart Association or the Relay for Life or local charities or providing computers to schools or PLCs to the community colleges in the area. And so when I got to Charlotte, we weren't doing that, those same things. And again, the more I got out and branched out and began to talk to some of my colleagues in the business community, very few people had any idea really what Nucor was and, and really how uh, amazing a company we are and, and what we can be doing together. And so for me, it was really how do we partner differently? How do we begin to invest our time, our, our efforts? We have two team members joining me tonight from our, our Charlotte office, Ben Pickett and Catherine Miller joining me. They do an amazing job. And the other 160 team members that are part of the Charlotte community with Nucor, how do we engage them? How do we use their skills and their time and talents in this community? But also, how do we invest? How do we think about in, investing in the things that are happening in the inner cities? How do we think about investing in schools and continuing um, to make a difference? And so um, I mentioned the American Heart Association and so Kim and I, my wife Kim and I are uh, co-chairing the Heart Ball that'll That's come right. in eight in February. So we, um, you know, we're, we're, we're both um, in and we love this community. We want to be active in it. And, um, and so for Nucor and for me personally, that means more than a, a verbal commitment. Mm -hmm. It means that you've got you to show up, you've got to pony up, you've got to invest your time and your resources accordingly. And so um, I, I couldn't be more excited about the story we have and the opportunity we get to, to partner with so many different um, needs in this community. Yeah, yeah. yeah. thank you. Let me, let me 
shift gears a little bit and maybe ask you a, a question or two that's a little more personal about your leadership style. So in the McCall School, um, as a legacy to our namesake, Hugh McCall, we, we uh, emphasize and focus on leadership and leadership development. And maybe a two-part question for you. Um, who's had the greatest impact on you uh, as far as your approach to leading others now? Maybe part one of that question. And then the second part would be, how would you describe your leadership style and your presence uh, when, when leading a company the size of Newport? Yeah, I think the, um, the first one for me is easy. It, it was my mom. She was, um, she was a rock and she was a very strong woman, grew up in, in Boston um, you know, with four older brothers, a very, very tough lady, and um, taught my sister and I to, to the values of integrity and hard work and family. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know it then. I didn't even know it early in my career that that was really the bedrock in, in my leadership development is, is those traits serve anyone in any industry, in any business incredibly well. Um, I tell our new hires when I meet with them all the time that it begins with integrity because if you people don't trust what you're telling them, you're going to have a very short career in Nucor and probably anywhere else. Um, so that was really, um, she was uh, an incredible woman, died way too early uh, from cancer, but you know, she was uh, my, my early pillar as I, I think about that. And you asked me my style, and I'm going to tell you I'm a servant-hearted leader today, but I, early on in my career, I, I don't know, I had the, um, the, the wisdom, the, the, the courage to lead that way. You know, over the years, uh, I've gotten to become very comfortable in my own vulnerabilities and my own weaknesses. And I want brighter, better, smarter, more talented, more capable, more gifted people around me. And so I am a shameless thief of great leadership. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal great ideas from anyone and everyone because it helps. And so I really see my job now as creating an environment which leaders can excel, creating an environment by which I don't stifle and I'm not the answer person. And so service and a lot of times when you think about the old style of leadership and it's top down it's you know ceo's job is to to do whatever well that's not my job is to serve 31,000 men and women period it's not the other way around i work for our team they give me the incredible privilege of leading them and they can take that privilege away and so i i i, I work really hard and i take that responsibility incredibly seriously um, you know, I, I've worked really hard in my career. Nucor is expected and, and, and has very high standards for uh, delivering results. And that's great. I'm, I'm great with that. And at the same time, as I cared and, and thought about my career, I, I, I take the same time and, and passion with our team members in creating an environment by which um, I want them to grow. I want them to go higher and grow farther and, and do better things than I will ever do in, in our future. And so... Um, yeah, I couldn't be more excited about, again, the opportunities and the, uh, the gratitude I have for um, the role that I get to play in, in this company. Yeah, I really hear that. I appreciate you sharing that. You, you said that you weren't always like that, and, and I really appreciate the connection between vulnerability and courage, you know, sort of the let your guard down to, to ask for help or to pivot yes. on a decision. Um, did, was there a certain point in your career where that shift, was it a dramatic shift for you? Was it a gradual shift over time? I'm curious about how that happened. Yeah, I, I, yes, it, it was pretty um, kind of sudden. So I, um, many of you may know the name Dan D'Amico. He was our CEO for, for many years at Nucor and somebody Peter knows really well also. 
So at the time, my vice president uh, at Berkeley said, hey, you have to go up and interview for a job you didn't apply for that you may not get. And you have to interview. Uh, I said, well, me, what? And he said, just go up and talk to D'Amico. And so I'm interviewing with Dan D'Amico. He said, well, here's the deal. We want to offer you this job and, uh, to, to build this facility in Western Australia to move your, you and your family there for four years, build it, start it up, and turn it over to an Aussie. And I said, well, what, what's the technology? It was high smelt. And I said, Dan, I, I can't spell high smelt. I don't even know what that means. And he said, if I didn't think you could do the bleeping job, I wouldn't offer it to you. I said, well, I'm going to be the best high smelt guy you've ever seen. And so, you know, we pack up everything, a life we've known here. Um, my wife, who talks to her sister and mother every day, and uh, fly, you know, 30 hours away, sold everything here. Um, landed in Western Australia, and as we got on that plane that night, I'll never forget her looking at me as she's bawling, saying, I hope you know what you're doing. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have absolutely no clue what I'm doing. And so I was flying into an environment where the planet had to be built, and the only team members that were there were all PhD uh, chemical engineers or PhD metallurgists. And here's this loud, brash, young American guy that's going to go tell them and teach them. and. And so I had to learn really quick how to embrace all their strengths. And, and I think one of the other important things as leaders that we, we have to confront ourselves to and saying, what value do I bring here? Because every role I've had in Nucor, our team may need something different from me than what I'm good at or what I'm comfortable at. And so what, what got me there may not continue right. to get me to the next point. And so I had to learn how to embrace that. And it, um, it was very humbling, not so much because I... I didn't know or I wanted to know is I didn't. I had no freaking clue at all what these guys were doing. And so, you know, it was an opportunity for me to lead in a very different way. And, and, um, and it worked out incredibly well. And I think through that experience, I was, um, in every sense, I've been able to embrace that and, and, um, and let my guard down and, and tell our team on a day-to-day -day basis, our team at Nucor needs me a whole lot or needs, yeah, I, I need them a whole lot than they're ever going to need me. So it, it's that, you know, sort of that symbiotic relationship that my job as CEO is no more or less important than any job in Nucor. It's just a different set of responsibilities. It's a different set of tasks. And so, um, you know, we have a, a member in your audience, you know, talking about those things that you have to confront. When I got offered the role of CEO, I was good with a lot of things that I knew parts of the role were going to be. And the thing that terrified me was going on television. I'm like, I don't want to do it, right? And uh, Ben and Catherine over there are chuckling because they, uh, they got to work through a lot of that, as did Lou Solomon. Because um, I'm like, guys, you're going to have to find me the best media coach in Charlotte because I don't want to go on TV at all, right? I don't want to pull a Ricky Bobby on national television, <laughs> right? And, um, and, and so, again, it's that confronting that I can't delegate that. So you got to embrace and, and get a hold of your own fear and the things that freak you out and, and overcome them and, and find ways and people and resources that can help you. And I would tell you, um, the hours I've spent practicing, I should be much better, but um, <laughs> I continue to practice and, and, and do that because it's not because I want to be on TV. It's because I want to represent the 31,000 men and women of our company really well. I wanted to... Um, to those team members I hadn't even met yet to look up and go, I'm proud to work for that man. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. Uh, let me ask you a question. We, we focus on resiliency uh, in our MBA programs, a sort of bouncing back after a setback or a challenge. Could you share with us a, a challenge or a setback <clears throat> that you've had to overcome either personally or professionally? What, what was, and, and what do you think 
in general, are the greatest challenges that leaders face today? You know, I certainly mentioned one, right? With, with, I, there's incredible power with being vulnerable. When, when people, um, when you're able to share your needs that they might have, people want to teach people want to help people want and when you invite that in and create that environment it's incredibly powerful and again I, I learned that lesson through my time in Australia I think the other one after coming back from Australia essentially the first 10 years of my career at Nucor were all in startups so we were running you know working crazy hours and you're just wide open all the time and so I came back and went to a division that was the longest tenured division in Nucor's history and while the team didn't say it was sort of this attitude of look we've had 17 melt shop managers before you we'll have 18 when you leave why don't you just go relax you know take a load off and, and go sit down I'm like well my personality isn't going to allow me to go sit down and uh, kick my feet up and, and sit back and so you know the other piece that I realized in that time I was so far out in front of our team I was standing alone and I had to learn the, the what it meant to go back and, and meet my team where they were at and I hadn't learned that. And that was a really powerful leadership lesson for me in my journey is I knew where we wanted to go. I knew what we were capable of doing, but our team needed to come along that journey. And I think one of the things that I would advise our, you know, your students or our young leaders here as you're developing your career, you know, there's a certain rate of change that any team, division, group, or company can, can move. Your job as the leader is to figure out what is that rate of change that I can sort of keep it right on the edge of chaos, but not lose your team. And so you want to keep it in a constant state of flux, but you can't be so far out because the reality is simply this, that the best laid strategy and the best vision in the world without the followership of your team is meaningless. It is fruitless. You will never accomplish your goal. So I recognize very early as well as CEO that before our team could buy into my vision and my strategy, they needed to buy into me. And so how you invest yourself in that time uh, is really important. And so, you know, I spent months and months on the road and doing live video streams because I wanted our team to know who I was. I wanted them to know how much I cared for them and, and giving them a glimpse into my life. I showed pictures of my family, my wife, my children, our dogs, and um, because that's that's the connection and that's the culture that Nucor expects their leaders to um, to have an intimate relationship with them and so it's uh, yeah, it's been an incredible journey not always easy learning some of those lessons took time and and were painful but I've had great mentors I had great team members that were willing to shut the door and use that open communication uh, in more than one way yeah, and, uh, yeah. and give me that feedback yeah, yeah. The challenge is, you mentioned it, is what, what got me here won't get me to the next step or the next level. It's counterintuitive because you have to do the exact opposite sometimes of everything that's worked up to that point. So yes. it's almost a leap of faith. You know, you're sort of stepping out there yeah. uh, and trying it. I have a question about um, <coughs> growing up professionally in Nucor and being named the president and CEO um, two years ago, two plus years ago. I would expect there are some unique challenges with being internal and having you know moved up in, the, in an organization the size of that, as opposed to being recruited and coming in from the outside and, and all of that kind. Of. Was there anything uh, specific? I mean, I can see a lot of advantages to that. I think would certainly outweigh the challenges. But were there any certain challenges w with that being being internal? Yeah, absolutely, and it really all sort of revolved around the external facing role of the CEO. And so while I was really prepared internally, the external side of our 
the role of CEO was really um, something I didn't spend much time doing. So investor relations, spending time on Wall Street, spending time with analysts, spending time with um, uh, you know, the heads of our companies and customers, Washington, D.C., and the lobbyist efforts. And again, Ben and Catherine have uh, you know, way too much time there. So it was really those external sides of the role of CEO that I was probably most ill-equipped to do and spent the most time um, working and, and, and preparing and, and planning and strategizing and, and developing my skills. And any of you that have been in an investor conference or done an investor day in New York City, it's a different language, right? They speak a different language. And I would tease our CFO at the time. I'm like, you guys speak Vulcan. Well, I don't speak Vulcan, <laughs> right? And um, as CEO, you better speak Vulcan really quick because that is the language in, in that, that moves business. And so um, I will, till I go to my grave, talk about the new core culture to every analyst that I speak to, but they really want to hear about the numbers. Yeah. They really want to know what the bottom line is. They really want to understand where you're moving, how you're investing, how the returns are going to manifest themselves over, over time. And that's fine. Um, but trying to connect them that every result that we talk about is made by individual team member with a name, with a family, with the children and grandchildren that that, that produces that, that output. And so, again, those external sides for me, Will, were um, probably the least prepared side of my journey. And as a result, um, you know, I've already begun the next succession planning and development for our future CEO so that the first time the next CEO of Nucor is on television won't be national television, right? We want to create some more um, easier platforms for them to walk in because my first time on Kramer was the first time I was ever on television. You know, I blacked out for six minutes and, um, <laughs> you know, and um, woke up and I was still standing, thankfully. But, um, you know, it, it, it can be really off-putting if you've not been in that environment and there's ways to overcome that and help to uh, our team to develop those skill sets long before that time. Yeah. Is, have you grown more comfortable with that now? Is it something that you look forward to, or do you think it'll always be something that you'll it's part of the role and you'll do it, or do you any shift there? Uh, no, there's a yeah, it's a hundred percent, and now it's um, I don't need a whole lot of prep. Now I can walk in because I'm, I'm much more comfortable with yeah. the, um, the the topics where we're going to go, the conversation, the you know the breadth of responsibilities and. and the dialogue that I know is going to come. And so, yeah, I would tell you hundreds and hundreds of hours of practice and prep have helped to get there. That didn't just come, but um, now, today, I'm much more comfortable. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to open it up for some audience Q&A, and then I'll close with a final question about advice that you might have for the audience. But one question I'd like to ask, we talked, you mentioned uh, your four children, your eight-month-old grandchild, yeah. dogs. I'd love to know about that. So being a CEO is a 24-7, always-on role, and yet we also know that we need to disconnect and we need to renew. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how you unwind, uh, what your hobbies are, anything else about family, favorite vacations, anything that, yeah. that uh, is clearly so very important. Well, I, as I mentioned, I'm married to my best friend, and um, as a counselor and therapist, she uh, keeps me very well grounded. <laughs> and so uh, there, there's a lot of couch time to, uh, to, uh, to unwind. But, you know, I, I would tell you, I, I have devoted myself to my family and to my career. And so um, I'm not somebody that goes out after work or goes drinking or, you know, golfing. I, I enjoy golf, but 
I'm not going to do it outside the family. And so when I'm not working, that's who I'm with. I'm with my wife and my, my children. And so, um, you know, there are, as I, I shared with our board, as we were going through the interview process, only a couple days that um, are sacrosanct that I'm going to be, be around. And one was, of course, my wife telling me no other person's going to walk our girls down the red carpet for father-daughter dance. So um, in addition to our 28-year-old son, 26-year-old daughter, at 40, we started over. So I have 13-year-old identical twin girls. So oh, wow. um, I'm not sure eight, eighth grade now, they're going to let me take them into the father-daughter <laughs> dance. But uh, <laughs> if they do, I'll be around on that day. And so she does an incredible job of helping me manage a really uh, complex schedule and, and keeping things in front of me that are the wants and, and these are the must-haves. And, yeah. um, and, and so for me, my unwind is being with them and spending time with them and, uh, you know, getting to uh, interact with them. Because as you said, you know, there's times where the twins are talking, but I'm not really hearing what they're saying, right? I'm a million miles away. And so Kim will, hey, did you hear what Bella said or Sophia said? No, what were you saying, Bella? You know, tell me again. And um, so she keeps me very well grounded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what kind of dogs do you have? What's that? What kind of dogs? We have two Shih Tzus. Uh, two Labradoodles and two um, Bull Mastiffs. Holy cow! So small, medium, and big. How much do the Bull Mastiffs weigh? Uh, the Bull Masters are 120 and 140. Yes. Yeah. And the Shih Tzus are 6 and 18 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was glad I asked that. I was yeah. just curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Terrific. Yes. All right, let, let's open it up. Let's open it up for some audience Q&A. Let's see, we've got about uh, 15 minutes more left. Okay, so, yes, sir. Hi, good evening. Um, Jorge Neri, um, I work for Bank of America. I'm a current MBA student. Uh, going back to the interview that you had about a job that you didn't apply for and you didn't know anything about, um, I'm assuming that there was some sponsorship on the part of maybe peers, other senior leaders that said, you know, when the CEO said, who, who are we going to send to Australia? They said, Leon. Um, can you talk about um, your experience fomenting those relationships? How do you get from a meeting to, um, to a sponsorship? Uh, that, yeah. I think that would be extremely helpful. Yeah, me. thank you. And, and it's important context there. Um, one of the beauties of, you know, I, my first five years out of school were in nuclear power. And if any one of you have worked in nuclear power, you know it's a pretty re regimented, very bureaucratic, um, heavily regulated industry. And, you know, I didn't see a lot of movement at the time I was working in that environment. And so when I joined Nucor, it was complete opposite. Uh, you know, I'm drawing stuff on the back of a napkin and it's getting built. I'm like, I'm not sure I'm qualified <laughs> to, you know, to design that. Um, but... I can tell you we were force ranked as engineers in the nuclear power plant. So I, we, you knew where you stood. When I got to Nucor, I'm looking around this table of my peers and I'm like, these guys are, and women are as bright or brighter, they're as well educated or better, they're as aggressive or more, and they're as young or younger than I am. In order to move to the top of this group, man, you're going to have to bring your A game. And what I found was the most competitive environment I'd ever been in in my life, but it wasn't competitive that I wanted to win at your loss or they wanted to win at my loss. It was they just wanted to win and you wanted to be a part of that. I can remember about three weeks into my career at, at Berkeley and our, our, when we were building our sheet mill in Charleston, 
it's 9 or 10 o'clock. My wife calls me up. She's like, you know, how you doing? I'm like, good. She's like, what are you working on? I'm like, I have no idea. I'm like, I have 2,000 drawings on my desk, and I don't even know where they're, what they're for, never mind how I'm supposed to approve them. And she's like, well, just come home then. I'm like, well, I, I can't. She's like, why not? I'm like, well, I don't want to be the first guy to leave because everyone was working those hours, right? And it was just this incredible camaraderie that, man, you just wanted to win. And the other beautiful part for me was I didn't have to kiss anybody's backside. I didn't have to golf or know somebody. I didn't have to hobnob with the right people because I wasn't good at that. I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to be known. And so what you described was exactly that. My peers made my reputation for me. I didn't have to say anything. And someone noticed and said, man, we think Leon would be great at that. And that call got made and, and Dan offered me that spot and, you know, kind of the rest is history. But that really is the, the beauty of new course culture. I mean, you don't have to worry about, you know, tooting your own horn. Others will do that for you because they see what you're bringing to the table every day. And inversely, for the team members that don't want to show up and work hard every day, man, it's, it's equally as off-putting because your team members will call you out. They will just flat out tell you you're not doing what you need to be doing and you need to step it up. And so it's an incredible relationship that um, serves, uh, excuse me, serves our company incredibly well. But thank you for that question. Great question. Yes, sir. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Paul Nelson. I'm, I'm known as Mazondo because I'm from Sierra Leone. Um, I love what you're doing. Amazing. I want to thank you for that. First thank you. Um, what I want to talk about is the, the next move and what's going on in the world now. And that's Africa. Because I heard you talking about the U.S. and you talked about Australia. And um, would you consider going into Africa is one question I want to ask. And the question is backed by certain things that happened even to me. I did a paper on you in my, in my previous class. Then even when I came to Queen's University, there was something that was missing in, in Charlotte, not recognized in Africa. But Charlotte is the second largest bank in capital, and Charlotte is doing very well when I ask people. So what would it take someone like yourself you know, to consider going into Africa amidst the difficulties, and what would those difficulties be for you? Thank you. Well, thank you for your question. And, and look, to be very frank with you, I, I, I can't give you an answer on the spot. I haven't done enough research to think about um, the opportunities in Africa, what that would look like, what's the cultural um, transition look like. Um, so it would be really difficult for me to tell you um, on the spot. You know, what I did find in living abroad is, um, number one, not everyone loves America nearly as much as we think they do. Um, <laughs> second was, you know, the, the work ethic was different. It was different in Australia, and we had to adjust um, how you pay. The union influence in Australia was very different than it is in most parts of the United States. So there's a lot of things, as you certainly well know, and uh, uh, to consider in answering that question. So I I'm going to, I'm going to uh, gracefully uh, pass on, on giving you a de definitive answer, but thank you for that question. Newcore continues to look for great opportunities where we think we can grow, where we can add value and, um, and, and continue to, to um, make a difference in people's lives. Thank you. Thank you. Yes.
there's this thought that being clean and being sustainable is a cost and not an opportunity. Can you talk a little bit about how that works in your industry sure. and maybe some of the things that you're doing from a recycling perspective? Sure. Yeah, thank you for the question. Um, you know, many still today think there's only one way to, to make steel. And, and if any of you have seen the pictures of, you know, Pittsburgh in the 50s and 60s and the billowing black clouds of coal and dust and ash, um, that's, that's the integrated or traditional blast furnace route of how steel is still being made in some parts of the U.S. Nucor pioneered and revolutionized what's called EAF technology, electric arc furnace. So all of our steel that we make is from recycled stuff, cars, washers, dryers, buildings, bridges, roads, you name it. We chop it up, cut it up, put it in a furnace and melt it down. So just because of the two processes, the difference is three to 400 percent lower greenhouse gas footprint that we have today. On top of which, Nucor is taking in, in the pioneer and leading technologies to make that even lower. So we believe we're the lowest carbon footprint steel producer in the world. And so um, that offers a certain value set. Many of our customers, particularly the uh, automotive OEMs, mm -hmm. are demanding lower steels. Mary Barra, General Motors, for example, can't meet her sustainability pledges and goals without a near net zero or net zero steel incoming to her uh, plants. So Nucor next year, for example, will produce about a million tons at pure net zero steel. And so it's called a conic, and, and we trademark that, and we're the first in the Western Hemisphere to be able to produce net zero steels at scale. And it really, we're able to do that because our starting footprint is so much lower. You know, then you asked about the value. I would tell you that uh, every ton that we sell of a conic is at a premium because companies need and want a, a lower footprint. They need it for their end use, their end customers. And so that, that continues to rise every day that the landscape around sustainability um, is changing at, at lightning pace. And so Nucor is at the, f the forefront of how green steel is being measured and defined. And we're gonna continue to lead that way in, in, into the future. Thank you, Iris. Good to see you. Yes, over here on the corner, yes. I'm Brian Hadley, I have MSTOD program here, and I, I work at Ingersoll Rand right now, and I'm interested in uh, the criteria that you use in making decisions as a leader. One of the business units I work with uh, had to decide between investing in technology that was going to grow our market share, or uh, taking that same amount of money and investing it to cut costs and grow our bottom line. When you have to make decisions like that, what do you use as your criteria? Right. Yeah. You know, I'm going to try to think of an easy way to articulate this short. Um, again, the culture of Nucor puts in places the trust at the decision-making uh, point of impact. So if it's at our, our steel mills, it's at, on the floor level, that those team members are able to shut the plant down if it's not safety, start it up, make improvements, modify, uh, and everything in between. If you think about... Uh, at a, you know, our, our mission statement, for example, is and our challenge is to become the world's safest steel company. Man, that's a really easy challenge to put out there. I didn't define for our team how we were going to get there. They're doing that. They're defining how we're going to accomplish the goal and putting the meat sort of on the bone. Um, you know, one of the best examples I can give you, and I, I can tell you from an equipment standpoint, when Nucor 
launched our Brandenburg plate mill, which actually came online last week. It will be the largest plate mill in the Western Hemisphere, the only plate mill in the Western Hemisphere that can serve the offshore wind market. It's about a $1.7 billion investment. At the time, Nucor's largest investment in the history of our company. I was executive vice president at that time. And after the buy meeting was done, the representatives from Germany that were selling the equipment came up and said, you didn't come into the meeting like we've never seen that before. Why weren't you in there? I didn't, I didn't need to be. There were a whole bunch of smarter people in that room. I, didn't, I, I never went into the equipment buy meeting until they were done. And then I wanted to meet and set some expectations, but I didn't need to, to spend that time. So for me, it was pushing it down to our VPs and our general managers that were going to make that decision, equipping them, empowering them, putting them and creating that environment for them to make the right decisions. And today that started up as our safest um, and on budget projects we've ever had in the history of our company. So again, our, our focus is, I mean, we've got to create a, a compelling strategy and vision equip our team and get the hell out of their way. That's a great question. Yes. Uh, thank you for being here, Mr. Leon. Sure. My question would be, like, recently you told mentioned that you, there is a downward trend in uh, demand for steel, right? Because energy costs are rising. How do you foresee that happening going from now until next year? Or how long is that outcome? Or outlook for the company? and the industry as a whole. And also China recently reopened their economy to the world. Do you think that could also have impact the, the outlook for demand for steel? Okay. Well, I didn't catch the back half of that. Did you? The, the, the last half of the question, the China, did you? Yeah, yes. I, and also China recently reopened their economy to the world. Do you think that would impact the outlook for demand for steel? Do I think it will impact the steel environment? Yes. Yeah, China has an incredible influence around the world in most every industry. Um, you know, China, for example, the United States, for example, produces about 100 million tons of steel annually. China produces 1.3 billion. Mm. Hundreds of millions of those tons aren't used and consumed in China. They find the shores to any nation that will allow them. So our trade laws and, and tariffs and countervailing duties and anti-dumping margins, it's a long case to win uh, in the United States. It's a year of saying this country's importing illegally or dumping their steel, and then it's a year to, um, to win the case. So it's a year of harm to, to show the data, and then it's a year with the ITC in winning that case. Um, fortunately, regardless of the administration, we've been very successful in continuing to combat that. But when you have that much capacity in one nation, uh, it, will be con it will forever be a continual threat for, for the steel industry. Their, their consumption and their use and their export is um, unlike anything we've ever seen, and, and that will stay here for a long time. Yeah. The first part of that question, not to put it's, you on the spot, what, from your seat, how, where do you see the economy in this coming year? In 2020? For 2023, um, you know, I think context is really important in, in that regard. Nucor's um, expects to have a record year in 2022, and I want to be careful right, with the Reg FD, but um, <laughs> expects to have a record year this year. When you're setting records and you forecast out something less than, um, it can seem way off. For example, Amazon announced that they were going to right-size their business and their warehouse build-out. I mean, it sent shutters through yeah. the industry and yeah. steelmaking. What's that mean? And Well, it's 60% higher than the record year, which was 2018 prior. 
Now it's going to be off about 20% year over year, but context, right, compared to two years ago, it's still up significantly. So for us, we, we expect 23 won't be as strong a year as 22, but it'll still be a good year. Uh, there are a lot of things in the, the market um, that we, we think are favorable and, and really tailwinds. Um, you know, as we think about the infrastructure bill, that will really take meaningful life. Yep. We think about the CHIPS Act and $55 billion translating to about 28 chip manufacturers that are going to be built here. I mean, some of those chip plants are, you know, tens of billions of dollars on their own. So that's significant. And there's several other things. Automotive is going to be up about a million cars in 23 than were in 22. So there's going to be a number of tailwinds for Nucor that we, we think you know, 23 will be, be a good year. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe time for one more question right here, sir, and then I'll close out with okay. your advice. Yeah, okay. Ileana, hey. Harvinson, MSPW student. With leadership, one of the toughest words is holding people accountable. And I've worked for companies who say family is a big part of the culture, yet it's tough to feel. So how have you learned to balance grace and accountability through leading yeah, great, great question. Thank you for that. You know, and, and I often talk internally um, about that open communication because when I go to a plan, maybe I had been before, they don't know me as well. Open communication sounds like a great thing, but open communication also means I'm going to shut the door and tell you that you didn't do something so well. And what I can tell you, I've learned, and, and again, going back to my parents, they were very direct people. And um, I'm a very direct individual, and I, I've had to learn to alter some of that because not everyone likes it right between the eyes. And, um, <laughs> but no one will ever wonder where they stand with me, ever. They will always know because I'm not the individual that's going to remember next February to give you feedback about what you did at that meeting. Uh, at that meeting, I'm going to pull you aside. I'm going to shut the door. We're going to do it just with the words that you said, with grace, tact, and courage. But I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to hear and what I need to communicate to you. And listen, right? It, maybe there was a reason or rationale because um, it, it can't just be one way. And so that, that component of accountability requires courage. And what you said is so important. At Nucor, our leaders have no choice. They are going to have to deal with conflict. It is part of leadership, period. And you're going to have team members that have had a bad day, and you're going to have to learn how to give grace. And you're going to have team members that are probably going to stretch and, and take full advantage if you allow it. And you've got to be able to shut the door. Um, for me, through 26 years of leadership, any of the accountabilities that I've done with our team, there were no surprises. People knew exactly where they stood. They knew exactly what their expectations were. And then, then it becomes sort of easy to hold them accountable. They, they made the decision for themselves because they knew what was expected and they, they didn't meet it. But it does require that courage piece, as you said. And um, I think Nucor has done an incredible job of breeding that into our leaders that have the courage um, to confront, to be able to put their arms around one another because conflict isn't bad. Right? It can be bad, but it doesn't have to be. And it doesn't have to be negative, but it has to be done. And people have to have um, honest um, feedback to know when they're doing well and when they're not. Thank Great you. Question. Thank you. So as we close out, we are at the appointed hour. I just wanted to ask yes. you a final question about advice that you might have for our audience members, especially for those maybe thinking about a career in the steel industry. Uh, what, what advice would you share with us? Newcore.com. You go on the website <laughs> and um, 
you will uh, absolutely uh, love to uh, love to see your resumes. But um, look, w one of the things I had the opportunity I shared with Will to speak at my alma mater a, a few months ago, and as I'm talking to the these senior cadets in, in, in the academy. Um, asking them what questions they're going to ask of the prospective companies coming on campus. There are very few that talked about culture. And I said, you have an incredible opportunity to ask how your company treats its team members through what they did in COVID, right? Engage and find out. Because, you know, my son moved here uh, last summer, and I'm asking him what's his criterion on the list of as he's evaluating companies. And I'm like, oh, my God, those are all the wrong things. Like, have I taught you nothing? You know, it's not paid time off. It's not, you know, money. If you're getting paid really well and you're in a really bad environment, really bad culture, you're going to be miserable and you're going to leave. And so what I would tell you, um, you know, from a career perspective, man, be bold. Don't, don't wait for the opportunity to come to you. Go, go after it. Go, go challenge yourself to learn. And then the other piece um, in your own growth and development, what your team may need from you may not be what you're good at, but it doesn't matter. It's what they need. And so you've got to continue to be a student forever. You've got to continue to educate yourself, develop yourself both formally and informally to learn and grow. And for me, I'm a forever student. I love to learn, um, but, but challenge yourself. Ask some of those team members that are around you for feedback, for the ones that will actually tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear, and work on it. Because all of us have weaknesses and all of us have the opportunities to accentuate the strengths the beauty of the new core culture is when that comes together to serve one another, man, beautiful things happen because now as an uh, entire corporation, 31,000 people rowing in the same direction is an incredibly powerful thing to behold. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks. What an incredible way to start the Thank you so much.